healing is not just the outcome. Healing is awareness. Healing is extending a pause for an extra second. We need that pause to expand so that we can honor ourselves and others in that space. From To Be Magnetic, this is The Expanded Podcast with your host, Lacey Phillips. And your host, Jessica Gill. As the leading destination for neural manifestation, we dispel the woo-woo in order to help you create real, tangible results based on neuroplasticity, psychology, epigenetics, and energetics. Our goal is to normalize the practice of manifestation and empower you to get into the driver's seat of your life in order to manifest the experiences, relationships, and things that most align with your authenticity. Part of our manifestation process entails expanding past your limiting subconscious beliefs. Therefore, by tuning into this podcast with interviews from experts, thought leaders, spiritual teachers, scientists, and those with neural manifestation success stories, you're starting the process of expanding your subconscious in order to see to believe that anything you desire is possible. And by pressing play, the process begins. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Expanded. Jessica here. Today we have on someone I have been following for a long time and I love her approach to healing and looking at some of our inner child wounds, licensed marriage and family therapist, Vienna Farron. Vienna is one of New York's most sought after relationship therapists and has practiced for more than 15 years. She's the founder of the group practice Mindful Marriage and Family Therapy. And she just released her debut book, The Origins of You, How Breaking Family Patterns Can Liberate the Way We Live and Love. In today's episode, we're diving into some of our core wounds. What is the origin of them? How have we created coping mechanisms to soothe those wounds, even if those mechanisms are not super helpful? And where did they originate from? How can we heal that inner child part of us? We dive into the worthiness wound, belonging wound, prioritization wound, trust wound, and safety wound. Likely, you will resonate with one, if not multiple, of these wounds. And it goes so in tandem with the TBM work because we're always looking at what is the root story, what is the root belief that is operating down there. And Vienna's book and this episode helps dive into how some of those beliefs may have been formed so we can create compassion for those versions of self. On Friday, June 16th, we are kicking off our Magnetic Self Challenge. How do we get back in touch with our inner higher self, our inner magnetic self, our authentic self, the part of us that is grounded, authentic, high self-worth, compassionate, connected to self, free and unattached from their fears or outcomes, what other people think they should do, and open to new ideas, possibilities that helps them to expand. 
if you have been going through transition, if you've been going through uncertain times, if you are taking a leap of faith, if things in your life are kind of shaking out in a new direction, this challenge is for you. It is getting back to finding who you truly are outside of all the shoulds, outside of the external validation, and outside of the fears that are keeping us small, who is underneath all of that? And how can we reconnect with that version of self? How can we meet them day in and day out and cultivate a relationship with them? So if you'd like to join the challenge, we have our summer sale going on where you can spin the discount spinner and lock in the lowest rate of the season. And if you're already a Pathway member with us, you will have free access to the challenge starting June 16th. And week one of the challenge is all about resetting our nervous system. How do we get to a deeply grounded place and emotionally regulated? When we are having those moments of dysregulation or high stress, how do we drop back into the body and regulate that? So to help kick off our getting grounded week of the challenge on Saturday, June 17th, we invite you no matter where you are in the world to participate in a magnetic walk in nature. You can register your walk for free online in our magnetic meetup portal. Let other TBMers know what area and place you're going to meet up. We are hosting one in the Los Angeles area. If you're around there, you can RSVP in the link in the show notes. And we just encourage you guys get in nature bring a friend, whether they're in the TBM work or not, welcome them into this world, meet an accountability buddy, and just set your intention off right by grounding in nature with community. And now a word from our partners. Did you know that every single time you brush your teeth, you swallow a little bit of your glob of toothpaste and over the course of a week, you're actually swallowing almost an entire blob. There is so many additives and preservatives and things that are not necessary for keeping our teeth clean, but are simply in our toothpaste just to stabilize the water and make it a paste form. And so founder of Bite Toothpaste Bits, a few years back, invented an incredible toothpaste bite that removes the water and thus removes all the additives. So you have all the stuff you need for pearly white, beautiful, healthy teeth, and none of the stuff you don't. It is one of the cleanest toothpaste on the market, and it even has nanohydroxypate, which is a natural form of fluoride. So it helps support your teeth, restore your enamel, and help with sensitivity. They are my absolute go-to, and I love that they are so sustainable and compostable. There's no plastic tube to get rid of. Everything is fully recyclable. You can get it on subscription, so you could have the little bites with you. They're so easy to travel with with so you don't need to leave it in your check bag. You can go through security with it. And we have a code where you can receive 20% off your order. Use the code MAGNETIC, all caps, M-A-G-N-E-T-I-C for 20% off. Again, that's code M-A-G-N-E-T-I-C. And you can check out the show notes to find their website and all the incredible products they have to offer and their beautiful pledge to sustainability and how they are working to help the environment. All right, on to the episode. I am so excited to have Vienna here with me today. You have been someone that has been on my guest list manifestation list for a while. Just your content and your energy and everything that you put out there really is like drawn me in and I felt very connected to it. It rings like a soft truth, you know, kind of someone guiding you on it. And when I saw 
your book coming out. I was like, we have to have her on. Now is the time. So I'm so excited to have you on. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here and excited to make your manifestation <laughs> come, <laughs> come into reality. How cool is that? I'm so honored to have been on your list. Yeah. It's so interesting because I think with the To Be Magnetic work, a lot of it is, you know, getting back to that self-worth, understanding where our self-worth is out of alignment with whatever we're calling in. And I think it's really getting back to that core wounding piece when it comes into that. And I think your book so beautifully touches on those core pieces. Actually, before we jump in, do you happen to know this little woo-woo question we have for everyone, your sun, moon, and rising sign? I know that I have a lot of fire in me. So I'm a, I'm a Leo and I don't know everything exactly, but I remember when someone did do it for me, there was a ton of fire in there. I'm like, yeah, it makes sense for sure. The Leo makes sense, especially because it's like impassioned and like really being able to share and be seen in the world and all of that. And I'm actually curious too, like thinking back on some of the personal stories that you wrote into the book, did you always feel so comfortable being seen or was that something that you really had to work on over time? Yeah, I had to work on that a lot. I share this, you know, in the beginning of the book where, you know, my parents went through a nine-year separation divorce process. I'm an only child. They had a tremendous amount of conflict, really high conflict, a lot of psychological abuse, manipulation, gaslighting, paranoia, emotional flooding. There was so much of that going on. And as a little kiddo, you know, I was like five, six years old when this started and not having any other adults around, I really stepped into this observer role and I had come to the answer that since the adults around me were crashing and burning and I really didn't feel like they were doing well, I didn't feel like there was room for me to not be okay. And so I got really good at whatever I put my mind to and I just really focused on that. And my belief, whether it was true or not that they had space or room for me, was that that was my perspective. And as a kiddo, I I wasn't there reasoning with myself. I was making decisions based on what I was seeing and experiencing. And so that led me to being a needless little girl who turned into a needless woman for a really long time, which meant that I was, in fact, hiding a lot of what I was feeling, what I was experiencing, not just to others, right? But like to myself, truly. Like I really convinced myself that I was fine, that I was unaffected, that I was unbothered by things. I embodied the cool girl persona for a long time. And that just meant that I had no boundaries, that I was fine with everything, even if I wasn't. You know, I didn't want to be difficult. I didn't want to be a quote unquote bother because I believed that that would be too disruptive. Ooh, there's no room for what my needs are, what my boundaries are, what my expectations are. It was just never something that I learned to do. I didn't feel like there was room for it. I was so scared based on what I saw growing up, right? And so I hid for a really long time until I started doing this work, which is what The Origins of You is is really all about. I went to school for marriage and family therapy. That's what my continued degree was in. And it was both through my own personal work and obviously my professional work where I was like, 
ah, yeah, like everything that is unresolved in my life, right? All of the patterns I keep finding myself in that I can't shake no matter how much I try or these patterns that I see in the couples that I was seeing, right? Or the conflict that they kept having or the fact that somebody would keep pursuing emotionally unavailable people to date or the boundary that they promised that they would set every single time over and over and over again, except never set or the fact that they could give advice to their friends, but never take it themselves. It's like when I really started to drop into that, I was like, ah, yeah, that's all connected to your resolution from the past. And my work specifically focuses on, you know, our family of origin, our family systems. Obviously we have other influences that affect us along the way, teachers, coaches, religion, society, media, right? There's you know, our past relationships, all of that. But for me, it is vital as a clinician, as a therapist, as an individual, to begin at least at the origins when it comes to our families and really understanding, you know, the education foundation framework we get from them for life, relationships, all of it. When you can root back down to those core narratives, core themes, you really understand, we had an episode recently about like why you can't get out of your own way. And this is truly the answer. It's like the wounding that is in place that you are doing to either go the opposite route of what the wounding was or try to get that need met in a way that's maybe ineffective, but we don't really know another path. We're not taught another path, a healthier path. And so we're in this cycle of, you had at one point in the book, wash, rinse, repeat. We're just continuing on in this cycle, hoping for a shift, hoping for something different. And yes, sometimes a partner or a boss or a friend can meet that need in a way that aligns with our wounding. But often people are not going to be as delicate and nuanced to understand all the pieces of our wounding. And it's almost like our soul's work to be that healing caretaker for ourselves that maybe we didn't get. And again, no blame to the parents. Everyone's doing the best they can, but we're all pretty aware of by now how impacted we can be from our childhood experiences. Yeah. You know, it's, there are a lot of reasons why we don't want to turn back. And what you just said is one of the things that so many people will say to me, they did the best that they could with what they had or what they knew, which is, you know, true for some, maybe not true for others. It's like people are scared of opening up Pandora's box. They maybe have gotten their relationships to a place now with family that feels okay enough, good enough, and they don't want to tamper with it. Maybe somebody is deceased and the thought of bringing something up that they can't actually talk about or is going to change their mindset about that person is overwhelming. A lot of times people will say things like, you know, their parents were way worse to them than they were to us. We come up with all of these reasons and narratives that distract us away from our pain. That's all that that is. And the book is not a journey of throwing our parents or caretakers under the bus at all. In fact, I really remind the reader a lot that grace, compassion, that there is context, that context isn't an excuse, but you know, we have these human experiences that we have to hold while still also holding accountability, responsibility, and ownership. And you know, back to what you were saying before, when we find ourselves in that space of rinse, wash, repeat, it's whether our pain is in the driver's seat or whether our healing is in the driver's seat. Our pain is in the driver's seat when 
you know, for me, it's like really the need to understand our origin stories and to understand like where that original pain comes from and tending to that because this idea that we can brute force our way through, right? That we can white knuckle our way through, that we can forget about the things that happened and just find the path forward. It's like, it's not working out. It just isn't. And I've been saying that patterns are pain's way of grabbing our attention. Pain is not out to destroy us. It's not out to get us. It's not rubbing its hands together, cynically laughing at our expense, right? It's, it's bringing us back into contact with something that hasn't been tended to, right? And when we can have that reframe, there's an invitation that is maybe slightly less threatening. Oh, there's something about my experience that I don't necessarily even need to remember the details of it, right? Because a lot of times people are like, I don't remember. I don't know everything. It's like, great. We don't, we don't have to have that. But we do need to feel, we do need to honor, we do need to connect to. And when we just try to move past it, right, pain is like, no, you don't get to just abandon and get on with it, right? Like something happened that is significant that really requires our attention. And when we can start to witness that pain and grieve alongside it, then it starts to give us an opening. Pain wants to release its grip on us. You know, and I think, again, that reframe of it's not out to get us, it really does want to find a path forward, right, is so helpful for us. And if we can be brave to step towards that, a lot of beautiful healing work can, can really happen there. It's wanting to get that corrective experience. Okay, I have this injury. Now, how do we heal the injury so it can actually be a straight leg again instead of a wonky knee? How do we go in and heal those emotional wounds? When you were going through and figuring out, you know, there's kind of five main core wounds in this, right? So we have worthiness, belonging, prioritization, trust, and safety. How did you get to these main themes? Was it everything kept echoing back into a funnel into these buckets? Yeah. When I sat down to write the book, I was like scribbling down all of the different wounds that I've ever come across as a clinician. And I've, you know, I've worked, I've been saying 20,000 hours now for years. So it's a lot more than that, where I've been direct face to face with clients for that many hours. I'm like writing all of these down. And I think at one point I had probably like 17, 18, 19 of them. And when I really sat with it, everything kept coming back to these. I was like, these are the umbrellas. And it's not for for any reader to have to fit themselves into a box, right? If there's language that works better for you, great. But this was such a helpful framework, I think, for people to realize like, ah, whatever my story is, the way that I internalize it is what matters. So for example, if you in your childhood had a parent who left, who abandoned, you may internalize that as a worthiness wound, meaning like you took this personally that I am not deserving enough. I am not good enough for you to stick around. But it also could have been internalized by someone else down the road as a prioritization wound, 
you cannot prioritize your role as parent and stay here, stick around, or a trust wound. I can't trust the people in my life closest to me to not betray me, to not leave me, right? To not follow through on you know what their role is meant to be, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's very important that we don't try to just be like, okay, here's the experience. And then this experience means that as the reader, your job is to actually get curious and inquire about your experiences and the ways in which they were internalized. And yeah, I really think that this embodies the human experience when it comes to pain and wounding and trauma, right? Is that like we question our worth, we question our belonging, prioritization, trust and safety in the world. So yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting funnel to get to these five Let's kind of go through them a little bit because I think people will be eye open to understand a little bit more on them. So worthiness is one that we talk about a lot in in regards to manifestation and that feeling of being worthy and knowing that you're deserving of having good things come through. And so I guess, how would you define the worthiness wound and what are some of the ways that that can start to be infringed upon or what are some of the routes that might lead someone to that internalized narrative? Yeah. So any perfectionists, performers, pleasers out there, you know, this one is for all of us. Sometimes worthiness is taught through conditions. So if you bring home the straight A's, if you're a phenomenal athlete and score the hat trick, if you are the comic relief, if you're a little bit quieter, if you present perfectly, if you do those things, then you get love, connection, presence, attention, validation, etc. You learn through that experience that your worth is dependent on that performance, on that ability to please, on that ability to perform, make people laugh, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of times you'll see conditional love in the space of you know, a worthiness wound. And so the reflection of, yeah, what were the conditions of love and connection and attachment and presence and, you know, affirmation, validation within the family system or systems you grew up in? You know, unfortunately for a lot of folks, it was less about the conditions and there might've actually just been statements of harm where, you know, people, adults in your life were actually saying, you're not deserving. You are not good enough, right? That where they were highly critical, maybe sometimes even leaning on abusive when it came to their language about you. And so I think we can either be in that lane or the lane of the conditions and just believing that I need to be X, Y, or Z in order to get ABC, right? And so, yeah, gosh, so much of that performance, so much of the perfectionism and the pleasers, you know, if that's something that a person resonates with, you likely will find yourself with a worthiness wound. In the book, though, I say, as I was doing this work, it's like, I'm pretty sure that every single one of us rubs up against a worthiness wound at some point or another. I have a worthiness wound and I told you a little bit about my story already, and this will make a lot of sense because my dad was someone who was super helpful, acts of service, like super present a lot of the time. But as long as I was being easygoing, the moment that I was difficult, I received punishment through silent treatment. And silent treatment would go on for days, weeks, sometimes. That experience clicked in that I get 
like I said before, XYZ, help, support, connectedness, presence, fun from this person when I'm easy, when I'm not difficult, when I don't express how I really feel, if it's in contrast with how he's feeling, right? And then the moment that I step into that, here's what's taken away from me. And that was the condition oh shoot, this is lost now. That love, connection, presence, fun, help, support, et cetera, is is vanished. And so to learn how to mold yourself in that way in order to maintain the things that we want, that was something that contributed to an already uh, powerful story around being a needless little girl turned needless woman. And it's like, oh yeah. And especially if you voice anything or are difficult on top of it, now this is what's taken from you as well. So the worthiness wound in a bit of a nutshell, but you know, there's, there's a lot to it there. I think too, one other thing that really spoke to me was exactly what you're describing. It's like the inconsistent attention, attunement, affection from parents. And I think especially people who have parents who struggled with mental health, if they had, you know, their mood swings were big, like sometimes they were able to attune and be there. And sometimes they were flooded with their own emotions and couldn't attune. That's going to create a situation in which the kid is kind of like, okay, so who am I? What do I do to get that attention, get that love, get that present parent back into my system? And I think that seeps in in a lot of different ways too. I know for me, you know, having inconsistencies with my parents definitely led me to kind of question and take in this narrative of like, okay, I'll just be so capable and do all the things and learn how to do it and just show them like, look how good I am. Can't you see, you know, just like waiting for them to, to see that in me, even though at many times they were able to, and they were like, yeah, amazing, great job. But because it was inconsistent, okay, wait, I need to be on edge waiting until I can like prove it again. And for someone like you, which may not be for your story, but for someone like you also like, oh, what changed in me to get that response, right? As opposed to what changed in them. We personalize things as kiddos all the time. We're not able to reason. We don't have the context there. We don't see the system at large. We're not like, oh, they might be going through something or, Mm -hmm. oh, maybe there are some challenges there, right? It's like, it's very personalized. And so we're very much in this space where it must be because I have done something different or I have done something wrong or in this space, I am not deserving than when I am in that space. And so that inconsistency becomes about you or it can become about you as opposed to it being a reflection of their inner world and you know what they have capacity for on a particular day or week or month. And I also want to note too, like as you were saying, if you're a perfectionist, people pleaser, proving your capabilities, performance achievement, those are coping strategies. Reframing, thinking about those behaviors, not as flaws or something you took away from it. You are now utilizing those things to cope with this wound and to prove a different narrative, a corrective experience with your narrative or to prove your worth in that sort of way. Yeah. I mean, all of our behaviors is protective and it's of service. And, you know, our systems are brilliant systems that find these beautiful ways, these really clever ways to try to create, you know, the outcomes that we're hoping for. And it is very protective. But at some point, as we step towards, you know, the mature, wise adult self, right, it's to be led by our healing as opposed to be being led by our unresolved pain you can still want the same outcomes, 
but to know whether it's the pain or the healing that is the motivator or the driver is so important. A colleague, dear friend of mine, and I share this quote in the book, Dr. Alexander Solomon says, our pain or our wounds and our gifts are next door neighbors. And so this idea that, well, I wouldn't be who I am today without this story. And you're like, okay, factual, sure. And that can't be the invitation to not tend to the pain or to need the pain or the unresolved wounds to be the motivator. Just because you heal, you don't lose your gifts. You know, just because you resolve, you don't lose your gifts. That stuff doesn't have to go away. And I think for a lot of people, there is that fear that I'm going to lose my edge or I'm not going to get the outcomes or the results or the goals that I have in mind if I actually tend to this differently. I think that's also an interesting piece we see come up a lot is especially when people are trying to understand their authenticity if you really break it down, sometimes you can like spin your head and you're like, is everything I'm doing based off of wounding? Like, is do I have no original <laughs> desire and thoughts if my gifts are so in tandem with my wounding? But I think for people, especially who are high achievers, high on, you know, desire for success, there is that fear that like, okay, but I do feel like a part of me authentically, genuinely desires this. And it feels like a purpose. It feels like a mission but my woundedness also lives so close to it and discerning between the two can only really come through healing that wounding. Yeah, that's right. And that's the beauty of it, right? It's like to, to have this space to know who is jumping in the driver's seat truly. In the origin healing practice, the work of witnessing the self, right? Witnessing the original pain, grieving alongside of that, that is the thing that gives us the space. We know the quote um, that's attributed to Viktor Frankl between stimulus and response, there is a space, right? That space, right? That leads us to our freedom if we take it. Witnessing and grieving expands the space. It expands the pause, because the more that we are aware of ourselves, the more that we understand our story, the more that we have been with our pain and honored it and respected it and acknowledged it and witnessed it, that's what does pull the pause further apart. And in that pause is the opportunity for the pivot to jump in that seat and choose from that place of what's going to lead me what decision am I about to say this? Am I going to do this? Am I going to replace this boundary with a different one? Like what, what happens in this space that leads me to either my most authentic self and expression that leads me to my healing and expansive goals as opposed to the suffering, the pattern, the loop, right? And so that's why, you know, turning back to that and spending time there is what creates those moments where healing takes over instead of the same old automatic response. Right? We need that pause to expand so that we can actually choose differently in that moment and honor ourselves and others in that space. I think that's really important you said that too, because I think the more that you start to do it, the more that you notice that pause, the more that yes. you're like, oh, this is the opportunity where I have the awareness and I haven't reacted yet so I can actually change. You know, you really see to believe that it's possible. And even if in that specific moment, you don't make the decision towards your healing, you make another decision. Now you're aware that there's a moment and next time you can become more aware and more aware and more aware. And then eventually when you feel safe and resourced enough, make that new decision. It's kind of a beautiful little dance. 
It is because healing is not just the outcome. Healing is awareness. Healing is extending a pause for an extra second. Healing is knowing that you chose the suffering instead of the peace. All of that is a part of the healing. And I think sometimes we overemphasize like, once you do this thing, that's all outcome focused, then you, you know, it's like, no, there's no destination. There is no destination. There is no like, Ooh, once I touch on healing, like I'm going to choose this every single time I come in contact with it. It's like, no, you won't. (laughs) You will go back. It's like we, my husband and I joke that I'm a point prover. You know, when, when we get into conflict, I'm a point prover. And, you know, it's like, oh gosh, I still prove my point sometimes. Of course we go into those spaces. And so it's so important to reframe healing in that way so that we're not setting the bar in this place that is unachievable. In fact, in the book, I'm like, we got to set the bar really, really low. That is the way that we start to move in the direction of where we want to go. I don't know about you all, but my sinuses have been going crazy. Maybe there's more pollen in the air or more dust, but for some reason, my nose keeps getting stuffy and running. And whenever I have anything with my sinuses, the first thing I run to is my beekeepers naturals. You know, we are obsessed with them here at To Be Magnetic. They are the company that is reinventing the medicine cabinet by creating clean, effective products powered by the beehive and backed by science. So I will go and grab their nasal spray, which is a completely clean, all natural way to support, clear, and soothe your sinuses when you're having irritation with all the stuff that you need that helps your body recover without any of the addictive habit-forming things that are in other nasal sprays out there on the market. It is packed with propolis, which is the defender of the beehive. Bees use it to line the walls and keep germs out of the hive. And when we take it internally, it is packed with B, C, and D vitamins, zinc, antioxidants, and 300 plus beneficial compounds. So when you get to spray this in your nose, it helps soothe the entire area and keep germs out. And it's also incredible to use before traveling or getting exposed to large groups of people. I heard a long time ago a recommendation that people have always said to put some sort of lubricant in your nose before you're going to go on an airplane or somewhere where you're exposed to a lot of different germs because it helps lubricate the area and can trap the germs. And that's exactly what this propolis nasal spray does, but it has the added benefit of also having vitamins and minerals that are going to boost your immune at the same time. And their herbal formula also includes eucalyptus, oregano oil, and xylitol, which will help the flow of mucus and increase nasal volume to help clear your sinus passages. So if you are suffering from allergies, stuffy nose, dust, or you're just going to be exposed to a lot of people and you want to really boost your immune, this is a game changer. You can also check out their throat spray, which I also use to support whenever I fly or travel, I have my nose spray and throat spray in my front pouch and make sure to spray both before getting on the airplane. And my health is in great condition afterwards. It gives me that extra boost. If you wanna check out any of the Beekeepers Natural products, you can go to their site, beekeepersnaturals.com or check the link in show notes and use the code TBM for 25% off your purchase. Again, that is TBM for 25% off. 
Okay, let's go into the next one. So belonging. You're betraying yourself. You're really abandoning your authenticity in order to belong, to feel safe, to be in community. How does the belonging wound originate or what are some places it can originate? Gabor Mate talks about authenticity and attachment, like these two lifelines, right? These two fundamental needs of ours when we're all the way through, but obviously when we're babies, when we're kiddos, and that when attachment is threatened, we will trade authenticity every single time, right? When we're a little kiddo, we must because it's our survival, right? And so a lot of families have this essence of, I don't know if you've ever heard like in this family, this is how we do things, Mm -hmm. you know, like this Mm -hmm. is what we believe. There's an emphasis on the group. There's an emphasis on here's what we do. Here's what we believe. Here's how we show up in the world. Here's how we operate. And if you don't believe and do as we do, you're on the outside. You get chucked. And again, when we're tiny, of course, we're like, I will adapt immediately because I need to be a part of this because that is what my survival is. There will come a point, any rebels in the house, right? Whereas like you might swing that pendulum totally to the opposite direction where you're like, screw that. I'm not wearing what you want me to wear. I'm not, I don't believe this or I'm, you know, and we take this path of opposition where we can start to rebel against the system. But when we're tiny, we adapt and we do trade that authenticity. We become, you know, some of the things that we hear all the time, right? Be a little less this, be more that. How do I need to adapt in order to fit in and be a part of that? Because that is my lifeline. And of course, there are other things that, you know, play into, I I talk about some societal factors in this chapter because I think that that's important. But again, this like, if you are different and the family system doesn't know how to love those differences, tolerate those differences, you can get rejected. You can be shunned. You can be criticized or ridiculed and placed on the outside. And, you know, gosh, right, to to be a part of something while holding on to your authenticity. It can be a really hard thing, especially when you didn't grow up with adults, siblings, the people you loved around you welcoming these parts, creating space for them where you didn't feel like the other the outsider. So yeah, the black sheep of the family is a really common one here, right? But that sense of just feeling othered, an outsider, I don't fit in here, nobody gets me. Sometimes those are the pronounced narratives that can that can come from there. Could it, let's say a parent that was emotionally shut off and you have a kid that is highly sensitive, highly emotional, could they potentially take on that wounding? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Because it's like, there's the difference. You're shut off. I'm highly sensitive. You don't know how to be with this difference. And I'm looking to you as the adult to guide and lead and nurture, right? And then you can't do that based on whatever the constraint limitation block is. And so this difference between us doesn't have space and room. So I just feel pushed to the outside or misunderstood, or you just don't know how to be around me or, you know, something like that. And so, yes, you can see that literally in any difference where there isn't capacity for love or curiosity even, right? Even if you're like, I don't get this, but I'm so curious about it. 
You know, you don't have to be the same people to understand each other. You don't have to love or like the same things, but it's when that difference becomes the rupture as opposed to the invitation to inquire and understand and see here, connect to in a deeper way. That's where that sense of belonging can really get cut. And then some of the coping, they either can adapt to whatever the system is they're trying to belong to, or there's a lot of like self-rejection, shadow. I guess another one you kind of mentioned here too is like they could take on the rubber persona. Like how can I be the contrarian? How can I do all the opposite things that you want because I'm showing you that I belong to myself and I I don't even want to try to be in your group because I want the complete opposite. Yeah, but the rebel isn't integrated either. We'll find that right at some point in our lives. And, you know, as I said before, the adaptation piece, like we start there always, you know, there's no like three-year-old that's like, nope, not going to do, you know, it's like, no, every, you know, we start there if that's the framework that is around us. And then, yeah, eventually we might go to that space where we're like, screw you. I'm going to do me. I don't care what you think. But again, it's not actually driven from a true sense of self-belonging. It's driven from that pain. You don't understand me. How am I going to like kind of sock it to you? You know, it's almost like a Mm -hmm. punishment back. Yeah. I'm going to reject you in this way because you've rejected me. I'm going to punish you in this way so that you can feel the pain that I feel. There is still something performative, honestly, about it, right? Instead of getting to this place of like, here's where my truth is. And if you don't understand it or don't get it, I'm actually at peace with that. Oh my gosh, it's so advanced, right? To get to that place where that really lives in truth within you. But that is the goal. This is what I believe. This is who I am. And it's okay if you don't get it accept it, love it, reject it, because it feels clean and clear and integrated within me. It's a long way to get to that place sometimes, especially when that wound is there in the first place, but it's a beautiful path to be on. Absolutely. Yeah. And when I say the coping, I'm referencing for anyone, this is not like we're suggesting how you should cope. We're saying like, these are patterns you may have picked up to cope with this wound that may not be working because they're coming from a unintegrated place. And to just continue on that point, Jessica, it also may be how you're coping today still, mm-hmm. because that's really a huge part of this invitation is not just identifying what your origin wounds are. It's okay, how I am in relationship with those wounds through communication and conflict, boundary setting or lifting. And if I am still taking a path of opposition and trying to prove something to a partner or a friend or a boss or whomever. We really want to see how these strategies are either leading us to greater disconnection from self or other or to greater connection with self or other. So I'm glad that you pointed that out to to the listener. Yeah, because I could see somebody like, cool, I just need to be the rebel. And then <laughs> 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 Okay, so I want to be prioritized. This is someone who's like wanting the bids for connection. They want their parent or caregiver to play with them, read with them, or just in general be seen, understood, honored by their their caregiver. And what are some of the dynamics in childhood that may lead to this? Yeah, at the core of the prioritization wound, right, is like I want to feel more important than 
all that other stuff, right? So a lot of times like the workaholic or there might be some other addiction that is present or a mental health challenge that occupies a lot of energy, time, space in the family system. Maybe a sibling who had an illness where the parents or adults were really focused on that other sibling and you sort of got lost in that and like that illness became the priority. It could be high conflict between parents where it's like, oh, the conflict is the priority. That's the focus. Nobody's even checking in on me. Or after a divorce, a parent starts chronically dating you know, one person after the next, after the next, after the next. They're so focused on that that they're no longer even seeing or focused on you. This is where I tend to point out, though, that not all wounds have to come from these like negligent, bad, malintended, abusive places. I share a story in the book, in the prioritization chapter about a client who I've named Andre, where he grew up with a single mama. She was working multiple jobs, double shifts every day, except on Sundays, she would go, they would go to church together and then have brunch together after church before she would go to her shift. And he loved her so much, respected her, held her in such high regard. And could really reason in our sessions that her working multiple jobs was actually her way of prioritizing him. But it didn't change the fact that he craved for prioritization through time spent with her. It was so important to identify because this was a case of like, this is just a heartbreaking case. This is truly a case of someone doing their absolute best with what they have. And it being this beautiful gift that she is giving her son, but that he still craves for more time spent with her, period, right? And it was so important for him to just get to that place without that meaning that she was a bad mom or that he was throwing her under the bus or that he wasn't grateful, that he had to stop respecting her. These were just the circumstances and that circumstances can still lead us to feeling a certain way. That's so important for people to hear. Like it doesn't have to be like, oh my gosh, yes, I had you know this abusive parent or I had this terrible thing happened over here, even though that, of course, is a part of it for some people. You cannot honor your pain while simultaneously protecting other people. You cannot actually give your pain space to breathe if you are prioritizing protecting them. You don't have to throw them under the bus. You don't have to hate them, think negatively about them, but you do have to put down protecting them in order to honor what it is that you feel. And that was so valuable in our therapy together for him to actually connect to that because he was coming in with a complaint from his partner around him not prioritizing her. And that was tied to his irresolution around not feeling prioritized as a kid. I love that you bring that up too, because I think there are circumstances where you really have to get in touch with not what your adult self can see as, oh, that makes sense. That happened like that. Oh, look, she did prioritize me. Check, check, check. What is the emotional state of that inner child who doesn't understand nuances like that, who doesn't understand why mom has to go to work? That's the part that we need to attend to and nurture and show up for and pretending that negative feelings aren't there we're never going to solve the problems that are presenting in real life today that we're still using to cope with what happened. So then even talking about the coping strategy on that one, that one, it kind of looks like you either are 
finding that pattern to repeat in your relationships. You're choosing dynamics in which you are not prioritized and perhaps unable to set boundaries with that, or you're not prioritizing another to kind of pull your your priority back to self. Yes. And you can also see it in people who are overgivers, you know, the people who prioritize everyone else around them and they overfunction in that space and they do and they do and they do. And it, it's almost like the model of how they want to be prioritized, but it's this like overfunctioning part that just seems to give and give and give. And the reciprocity really isn't there. And again, it, it's going to miss, right? Because it, again, it's coming from that that wounded place, right? It's coming from that place of like, oh, if I just do it this way, then I'm going to finally get someone to prioritize me back. But usually, right, most people will say that they feel disappointed because, oh, I do this for everyone. Nobody actually does it for me, right? So there's there's a lot of different ways that it can show up in our adult relationships. But that is one where I, you know, I, I see that quite a bit, of course, along with the other ones that you just shared. If you keep remembering that our pain, our unresolved pain is going to bring us back into contact with the thing that needs our attention, it is why we tend to choose people who leave us with that wound reactivated in some way. That's the offering there. It can be hard to see through that sometimes, but when we have that pattern that is a you know dysfunctional, unhealthy pattern for us in our lives, we need to see what's being called of us there. You know what what's actually being tended to because it keeps bringing us back to the irresolution. If you spend some time with this, you'll see it. Okay, this thing that I complain about, this frustration that I have, ah, uh, what wound or wounds are actually present in this space? There's a lot that gets revealed there. And what are all the behaviors I'm trying to get that need met, resolved, avoid it, whatever it is that aren't in integrity with my authentic self? So many people are going to have their minds blown when they really take inventory of that, especially with the journal prompts in the book too, where you're just like having to look at all the ways this wound is impacting you today. Oh my gosh. I mean, with a prioritization wound, for example, you will most likely have porous boundaries around that all the time because your porous boundaries, meaning you let anything in and out, like you kind of, you're disconnected from self and, you know, what actually lines up your yeses with your yeses and your nose with your nose, right? It's like you will absolutely be porous in that space because your desired outcome is prioritization, you know, somebody asked you to do something that you don't really want to do. Okay, I'm going to do it no matter what, because connection is on the other side. Porous boundaries are pr about prioritizing connection. You start to see in these behaviors, well, I hold something back because I don't want to disappoint someone because if I disappoint somebody, then I'm not going to be prioritized. Or I'm going to be passive in my communication because as long as I don't bring this thing up, then at least you and I can stay connected you will start to see the ways in which behavior is trying to protect you from the fear, you know, where it's trying to protect you from the thing that you don't want to have happen, but it keeps leaving you further and further away from yourself. There are so many people out there settling for unfulfilling relationships or people who are stuck in toxic jobs, living in places and spaces that don't inspire them, and especially people who feel like they'll never be able to afford the things and the life that they truly desire. How do I know that? 
because it was me before I discovered that manifestation is actually a totally viable, scientifically proven method of creating the life you want. I'm Lacey, I'm the founder of 2B Magnetic, and if you're not familiar with us, we at TBM offer workshops that teach you how to manifest literally everything from love to money to career to beyond. Our courses are the most effective manifestation method on the market, and that's because of a secret that I discovered years ago about manifestation, which is you do not manifest from your thoughts. You manifest from your subconscious beliefs. So after decades of client research and input from leading doctors and therapists, we design courses that help you rewire your subconscious mind to align with what you want to manifest. And the best part of all for any skeptic out there, our work is completely scientifically proven to work. Just ask the tens of thousands of members inside our Pathway membership, which gives you unlimited access to all of our workshops, tools, and offerings that you'll use over the course of a year. This includes workshops on inner child, shadow, boundaries, love, money, the infamous ruts, and the horrible rock bottoms, and so much more. And right now we have our big summer sale going on where you can spin the discount spinner and lock in one of the lowest rates of the season. Okay, now back to the episode. Okay, let's go through trust and safety. So trust is really where you're difficulty trusting and believing others. That one I feel like comes up really boldly at some point in your life if you have this one. If you have betrayal, deceit, abandonment, what else can come up around this? And what are other coping mechanisms that people might turn to with this one? Oh yeah. I mean, the hypervigilance of course is always going to be there for both trust and safety. There's a lot of interconnectedness, obviously, right? When there's a rupture in safety, it usually means that there's also a rupture in trust. But yes, as you said, with trust, it is about betrayal. It is about deceit. It is about lies. It can be in some of the simplest things where you know somebody repeatedly promised you something and then they never followed through. Okay, we will go do this together, mother, daughter, you know, something like that. And it just never happens where you just no longer trust a person's word. Or you may have even grown up with the sweeping generalizations, never trust a man or hearing something that feels very absolute. And it's obviously driven by that person's unresolved pain. It is the hypervigilance. It's the expectation that the betrayal is going to happen, right? That the deceit is going to happen, that the letdown is going to happen. So you might be the person who's checking on the phone when your partner turns away or leaves it downstairs or going through DMs or emails. It's the person that's on the hunt for finding the truth. But it's also the person who's like, puts the wall all the way up. Because I can't trust anyone, then I'm really rigid in my boundaries. The wall is really high. I don't let anybody get close because everybody disappoints and everybody lets me down. So there can be this desire for deep connection and closeness really quickly to try to almost manufacture trust. Or the like, I can't get close to anyone because here's what I know is going to happen. And so I can't have intimacy. I can't have love. Those things hurt. Those things disappoint. Again, number of different ways in in how it can present. I'll share this quickly because I lead with the story outside of my own at the beginning of the book, right? Where this 
client is coming in. She's partnered, about to get engaged to this man, Clyde. And she's like, I don't know. I just like worry about something. I think the other shoe is going to drop at some point, even though he's this great man and he really hasn't given me any evidence that I should be concerned about anything. She doesn't want to turn back to her family. She's like, oh, here we go again. All therapists want to do this. Like there's nothing in my family. It's perfect. Promise. And then eventually we get to this place that she had come across emails between her father and someone who wasn't her mother on his computer. And she had held her father in such high regard, really on a pedestal. He was somebody who came home at night, had dinner with his family every single night. Like it, she couldn't even fathom how this was going on. These two people were saying that they loved each other. They had this great weekend together, all this stuff. He walks in on her. He tells her, please don't ever tell your mother. She never does. She swallows this information and she becomes sort of a participant in really this betrayal. And has absorbed it in such a way to maintain status quo in the family, right? Because they had to go on and be this perfect family and everything was fine. And she absorbed it to such an extent that she didn't even realize what type of an impact that that betrayal had on her belief of relationships and men. And so she would prematurely exit relationships as part of this like sabotage, which was a protective mechanism, of course, but part of this sabotage that she found in her relationships. And so obviously the story is more complex and has layers to it, but I just wanted to share that as an example of like, yeah, right. If, if we don't resolve this, could you sabotage? Could you prematurely exit? Do you prevent yourself from getting close to anyone because this is what you believe is going to happen? And what is that robbing from your life? I think especially with affairs and families and, and I like that you gave the other examples as well, because I think that paints like a lot of people think the trust is from that, but it can come from so many ways, but yeah, the affairs and family and the lies between that is just very complex. And there's a lot of layers of, of safety, trust, you know, prioritization can come into play there. Like, why is this other person prioritized over this family? So many layers there. And I think that that's more common this day and age too. Yeah. So safety is, you know, when we're talking about the absence of safety, we are often talking about the presence of abuse. So this is a really tender chapter. Overall, how one has an origin safety wound is when your overall well-being is not cared for. There's no concern over it. Respect, protection, honor of you your well-being, right? And so whether it's abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, mental, psychological, financial, whether it's that, whether it's negligence, whether it's recklessness, your well-being has not been protected, honored, and respected. And, you know, that belief that it will not be, like, who who can I trust? And that's why I said there's such an interconnectedness of, like, what does safety look like, right? Because when the people who are supposed to be safe, when the people who are supposed to protect me are the people who are not, that's a significant rupture. Where am I safe? Where am I secure? And sometimes life just happens, right? So safety might be your family system was lovely, but you experienced a robbery or your family was okay, but you were at home when a grandparent had a stroke and they were watching you when you were a kid. Sometimes it's just these experiences or a parent dies early when you're a child and you're just like, 
the security, the safety is gone. They live with, is my other parent going to die now? Right. So there's a lot of things that don't have to just be the abuse, negligence, recklessness, but you know, this is a really tender chapter that I always remind people and encourage them to take very good care when they read. Thank you so much for going through all of these. I know we had to like squeeze them all in. (laughs) I just want to like recommend everyone specifically in the book, go through those winning parts, but understanding how this plays out in your conflict, how it plays out in disagreements with others, friends, family, romantic partners, and in your communication style, because you have a section for both of those in there. And then the other thing I want to kind of touch on quick before we go is just you know, I know you have a a practice in the book of how to start healing and peeling back the layers for these pieces. Can you kind of just talk a little bit about that process and just sort of the hope on the other side? Because I can see the person be like, oh my God, I have all these things. Like, what do I do? Where do I start? What would you say to that person? Yeah, yeah. This is, of course, it can feel overwhelming. And, you know, it's a lifetime practice. And so I guess part of the beauty is that you've got your lifetime to, you know, figure parts of this out and it doesn't all have to happen in this moment, but just even the like hopefulness of moving in that direction is a really beautiful thing. Obviously the first place we start is the identification, you know, the acknowledging of what my wounds are. And it wouldn't mean like, don't skip over chapters because you'll see that, yes, I wrote this book for you as the adult child reading it, but I also wrote it for you as the partner, as the parent, you're going to see other people you love and care about in these chapters that might not be your wound, but might be someone you love's wound. So identification of the wounds, as I mentioned before, the second part of this is the witnessing of that pain. Really just acknowledging that that's accompanied by the grieving, which is to me, when you do witnessing well, it becomes the authentic expression of our emotion. That's what grief is. And then it leads us to the pivot. And listen, no dummy. Obviously, this is not like a follow these four steps and you will be, you know, it's like this isn't some, you know, gimmick. This is a true practice, a life's practice that has been so healing, so rewarding for me, both personally and professionally. And I think, you know, to your point, when we start to do that, then we get to engage with communication, conflict, and boundaries so differently. Part three of the book is huge. It's so massively important. So yes, that healing practice, I guide you through it in the book. Even if you don't do the audio book, there's a place where you can go and listen. So if you if you have the hardcover, you can type in a URL and I will guide you through it so you can actually close your eyes so you can actually be led through the practice. And yeah, just so grateful that I got to share some of this here with you and everyone who's listening. Yes. Thank you so much. It's so needed and so important to everyone right now. And I think our community specifically is going to just see how it, all of these wounds can be impacting, you know, what's coming up, what tests, triggers, patterns, et cetera, and really help shift them in a big way. So thank you so much. Of course. Thanks for having me. hope you all enjoyed that episode as much as we did. And if you're starting to get a feel for this to be magnetic manifestation process, but aren't completely sold yet, let me point you to some of our free offerings. You can check out the expanded podcast episode called how to manifest anything you desire where Lacey, the founder and I break down exactly what this process is all about. 
You can check out The Motivation, which is our testimonial library with thousands of testimonials of people who have manifested wild things using this process. Or you can check out our free mini workshop to find out why you're not manifesting and listen to one of our proprietary deep imagining audios where it's going to help you drop into your theta state and overwrite low self-worth limiting beliefs. Enjoy. We'll see you next week.